You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with exclusive details about fire response times at the Trans Mountain Tank Farm on Burnaby Mountain. Global News has obtained a report that examines what would happen in the event of a serious fire. Activists are concerned with the results, especially with the expansion of the pipeline and the tank farm in the works. Paul Johnson is live at the tank farm for us tonight with the exclusive details. And Paul, what's the concern specifically about response times? Well, Chris, this report talks about Trans Mountain's planned response time to a major fire here as being six hours, which is far longer than what activists and some local residents are comfortable with. It also seems to confirm their belief that there needs to be greater communication between the fire crews here at the terminal and the municipal fire department. The report in question was commissioned years ago by the federal government's National Energy Board and was prepared by a company called PLC Fire Safety Solutions, who specialize in evaluating fire preparedness at big industrial facilities like Trans Mountain's Burnaby Terminal. While the report found that Trans Mountain's facilities were, in general, compliance, it raised questions about the time and manner that Trans Mountain's firefighting team could respond to a major fire. Carl Parent is a spokesperson for Broke, Burnaby residents opposing Kinder Mountain expansion. He lives on Burnaby Mountain and is concerned about some of the findings. The headline is that there's no coordination between the, uh, the fire safety uh, plan at the tank farm and the, and the people at the tank farm responsible for putting out fires and there's no coordination with the Burnaby Fire Department. Initially, parts of the report were challenged by Trans Mountain as being beyond the allowable scope of the inquiry and the report was kept from the public until Sven Robinson, the NDP candidate for Burnaby North Seymour, filed an access to information request. He's opposed to the expansion of Trans Mountain and says it confirms his fears about safety at the facility. The most important concern uh, on this document, which Kinder Morgan and now Trans Mountain Pipeline have been stonewalling and trying to prevent the public from having access to, is that the existing tank farm has very serious threats to the health and safety of the people in this community. The expansion is completely unacceptable. Trans Mountain told Global News today there is nothing more important to Trans Mountain than the safety and well-being of our neighbors. And with respect to the specific concern about working with local authorities, they said Trans Mountain welcomes the opportunity to work with the city of Burnaby to discuss fire preparedness at the terminal. So this report also uh, points out that there's currently no mutual aid agreement between Trans Mountain and the Burnaby Fire Department. Now, we found out this is a little bit unclear because mutual aid agreements typically exist between cities, not between an industrial facility and the local fire department. So we could use a little bit more elaboration on that. But if the intent of what they're talking about here in this report is that there is a higher level of collaboration and integration between the firefighting crews here and the city of Burnaby, I think that would probably allay a lot of the concerns of some of these critics. Chris? Sounds like it. All right. Paul Johnson in Burnaby. Thanks, Paul.
Some gripping testimony today in the murder trial of Gabriel Klein, the man accused of stabbing Letitia Reimer at Abbotsford Senior Secondary School. As Grace Key reports, today the court heard from several witnesses, including the school principal, who recounted the horrifying moments after the attack. A warning, some of the details are disturbing. Robert Como, the principal of Abbotsford Senior Secondary, took the stand. He was in a meeting with two vice principals at the time of the stabbing. He says his secretary screamed he has a knife. They all ran out and saw the suspect stabbing 13-year-old student Letitia Reimer. He had eye contact with me and dropped the knife and got up. The principal and vice principal approached the suspect, instructed him to kneel down and put his face on the floor. He did. I asked him to put his hands behind his back. He did. We both held him down. It seemed like he struggled for a bit and then just seemed to give up. The principal said there was no delay in responding to his commands, adding the suspect had a blank facial expression. The vice principal, Bruce Cuthbertson, took the stand. He held the suspect while the principal initiated a lockdown. Through tears, he described people trying to save Letitia. People were trying to do first aid and Paula was begging her to stay alive and the blood that was leaving her body was increasing in volume. It became evident to me that I was holding someone who had killed someone. He told police the suspect was strangely calm. Now, defense is expected to argue that Klein is not criminally responsible for reason of mental disorder. Tomorrow, we're expected to hear police recordings of the day of the stabbing. In New Westminster, Grace Key, Global News. The attempted murder trial got underway today for Carlton Stevens, the man accused in a shooting that claimed the life of an unborn child. And a warning, parts of this story are disturbing. Our Ramina Dea was in court today. Ramina, go over the details that emerged during Crown's opening statement. Chilling details revealed in court today, Chris. According to Crown, the victim was fast asleep. When she awoke, her ex-boyfriend was standing at the foot of her bed. Carlton Stevens shot the victim once in the stomach, said Crown Counsel Joanna Medjuk, the mother-to-be six and a half months pregnant. The bullet that hit her went through the entirety of her uterus and severed the umbilical cord, Crown told the court. When the C-section was performed, it was discovered the fetus had no heartbeat and was declared dead. All I seen was she had a bullet hole in her belly. And it was... Being a mom, I can't imagine what she's going to go through when she wakes up. Dolly Middleton is one of several witnesses expected to testify. The shooting happened at a loft above an East Vancouver print shop in May 2018. The victim still has a bullet lodged in her spine. She cannot be named because her identity is protected under an interim publication ban. Taj Lovett, the man sleeping next to the victim at the time of the shooting, ended up in a struggle with the accused, according to Crown. Medjuk says the victim was being accused of infidelity and she and Lovett were the subject of death threats via text messages. Stevens has pleaded not guilty to one count of attempted murder and one count of possession of a firearm while prohibited. The main issue at trial will be the identity of the gunman. Two men were captured on CCTV footage fleeing the print shop. Medjuk says several witnesses saw Stevens with a gun and he was wearing similar running shoes when he was taken down and arrested in Surrey days later. 
Now, the second man seen in the footage bolting from the scene, um, witnesses have never identified that person. We never heard anything about him in court. The victim is expected to take the stand. The trial is before a judge alone, and a VPD officer will be on the stand Wednesday. Back to you. Ramina Dea in Vancouver. Thanks, Ramina. Vancouver police are issuing a warning about a high-risk sex offender who plans to live in the city. Police say 45-year-old Trevor Leonard Smith has been convicted of sexual assault and poses a high risk of relationship and sexual violence, particularly against children. He must abide by a number of conditions. He cannot have contact with anyone under the age of 16, nor can he consume any controlled substance or use a computer. He must also advise a parole officer of any relationships or friendships with females. If you see Smith violating any of those conditions, call 911 immediately. A Vancouver man has been charged in connection with the fire that shut down Emily Carr University's Mount Pleasant campus for 10 days. The restoration work from the fire is expected to cost millions and will carry on throughout the semester. Catherine Urquhart has more on the suspect and the charges he's facing. Inside Emily Carr University, a massive cleanup and reconstruction effort continues following a fire October 5th. Damage to walls and ceilings extensive, especially on levels 3 and 4. Flames, smoke and water have also significantly impacted a section of the library that houses university archives. Fortunately, our fire suppression systems work exactly as they should and the fire was put out very quickly. Um, unfortunately, that means there was a lot of water in the building and it is damage caused by the water to our floors and to our ceilings. That has been most of the issue that we are facing here. It's believed the fire was intentionally set. 40-year-old Nathan McLeod was arrested Friday and is now charged with two counts of break and enter and one count of arson. We believe this to be uh, isolated to this one individual for this case. Um, we don't see a public threat out of this incident. McLeod remains in custody and police aren't saying how he may be connected to the school. As it is before the courts, we're not going to be releasing uh, his relationship on why it, this incident happened at the university. Uh, we don't want to see any type of incident like this happening, especially impacting the, the students who are trying to uh, get their education. Emily Carr University is open again following the 10-day closure. However, some classes have been temporarily relocated. Everyone really has come together to find a way through this to make adjustments. As for any classes missed during the closure, students can expect them to be rescheduled in the coming weeks. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A tentative deal has been reached between or involving nearly 1,500 workers at four downtown Vancouver hotels. According to Unite Here Local 40, the agreement secures significant wage increases for staff over a four-year period. It implements protections against sexual harassment maintains health insurance and improves job security. The deal involves workers from the Four Seasons along with the Western Bayshore, Hyatt Regency and Pinnacle Hotels which have been on strike for a month. The strike continues at the Rosewood Hotel Georgia.
Now, six weeks into the school year, the BCTF is raising concerns about hundreds of teaching positions that have yet to be filled. The union, which is in the midst of contract talks, claims the province isn't doing enough to attract and retain teachers. And Aaron MacArthur reports wages are at the center of the problem. Millions for a new school in Maple Ridge and millions more promised. Tutsquanela Elementary, one of two dozen projects the NDP have invested in over the past two years. But it's always a great day as the Minister of Education to be in a new school somewhere in the province of British Columbia. Filling these new schools with teachers proving to be the real challenge. The BCTF says nearly two months into this school year, the province is short almost 400 teachers. The shortage made worse by what the BCTF calls low wages. Wages are always the big issues in bargaining. We've had so many years with either zeros or wage increases that have not kept up with the cost of living. In a letter posted early in October, the government employer was offering teachers a 6% wage hike over three years and no yes, change in contract we language. Sure it's a move that came up short for the BCTF leadership. The two sides now locked into a mediation process. There's been 68 meetings, I think, uh, over the past couple of months, and I'm hopeful that we'll get to a conclusion shortly. BC teachers are paid less than in Alberta and Ontario. The negotiating team wants to close that gap. If Ontario, due to their provincial government, ends up with a number numbers of uh, teachers out of work, it's doubtful they're going to come all the way to BC to get a job when we have such a high cost of living and they would be taking such a significant pay cut. Funding now! What do we need? Funding now! Mediation set to conclude in November? Unlikely that will end the labour impasse. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Well, Keith Baldry joins us with more on where the talks stand and the role of the mediator. Keith, are these negotiations getting anywhere? Uh, frankly, no. Uh, in fact, there's actually no negotiations underway right now, none scheduled. Uh, so what's happened is the mediator has taken a step back a couple weeks ago uh, because the employer wanted, wants him to file a report, his assessment of the dispute, as uh, is uh, able to do under the Labor Relations Code uh, legislation. Uh, what he's looking for now, the two parties are um, providing submissions of how they see the dispute to him. He's going to uh, issue his report, I think, about November 1st, and he has the power to recommend a set here. He can't impose a settlement, but he can recommend one, and that may get the ball rolling again at the talks, but they're not scheduled yet and probably not for some time to come. Right now, though, drivers taking the Patella Bridge over the next three weeks could face some significant overnight delays. The northbound lanes of the span will be closed several times while crews install some new safety sensors. As Ted Chernecki reports, the sensors are designed to detect high winds and seismic activity that could threaten the 82-year-old bridge. Here's an artist's rendering of what the new $1.38 billion Patullo Bridge will look like just upstream from the existing 83-year-old crossing. The province is sticking to its estimated opening date of sometime in 2023. Until then, another $5 million is being spent on the old bridge, necessitating some closures beginning tonight. Overnights, there are going to be some closures in the northbound lane. Uh, we're advising people who do typically cross that bridge in the northbound lane overnight to uh, use either the Alex Fraser or the Portman Bridge. So every night until November 4th, the northbound lane is closed between 10 p.m. and 5 a.m., except for Fridays and Saturdays and Halloween, though workers will stand down for emergency vehicles only.
Patello Bridge is about to undergo some upgrades, which will see a seismic warning and a wind warning system installed. Four big reasons why refurbishing this bridge is just too expensive. The concrete's crumbling, the steel's weakening with age. If a large vessel hits this unprotected foundation, it could be catastrophic because the Fraser River is eroding the structure's integrity. The storm that damaged the White Rock Pier last December had wind peaks of 100 kilometers an hour. Engineers estimate any wind over 93 is risky for the Patello. So is an earthquake of six or more. If either of those two events happen, it could get newly installed lights flashing and like a railway crossing, full stoppage of all traffic. Ted Chernecki, Global News. Less than a week to go until Election Day and millions of Canadians have already cast their ballots. Elections Canada says there was record-setting turnout at the advanced polling stations over the long weekend. Officials say 4.7 million voters cast ballots over the past few days. That's a 29% jump over the advanced polling period of 2015. Some good news from the Okanagan tonight for wine lovers who were worried that all that September rain might ruin this year's vintage. Wineries say while too much rain can dilute the juices, in this case it will only slightly lower the alcohol content of this year's product. So we'll still get great flavors, we'll get great wines, they've got a really nice balance to them. So instead of saying 13, 14, 15 percent, it may be a year where we see 12, 12 and a half percent uh, alcohols. Just means you can enjoy an extra glass. I was just thinking that. There's a silver lining. <laughs> Researchers at UBC have made what could be a breakthrough in recycling consumer textiles that far too often end up in the landfill. Scientists have found a way to convert cotton waste, a much bigger problem thanks to the fast fashion trend into something called nanofibers. Linda Aylesworth explains what those are. You see it, you love it, you buy it. And then what? We want to use the clothing uh, for maybe a maximum couple of times and threw it away. This caused lots of problems. Not only does the production of fast fashion as it's known hurt the environment, so does what happens when we tire of it. Maybe 5% would be the maximum that would be going to recycle. Otherwise, the rest would end up to landfills. What can a couple of fiber scientists at UBC's Advanced Fibrous Materials Lab do about it? So we need to convert this to useful material, then instead of polluting the environment. They're doing it by finding a way to turn cotton material into nanofibers, strands 500 times smaller than a human hair. It's a really challenge because if you want to make some add value product, you need to end it up to like a pure material. And cotton fabric is not pure. It contains chemicals and dyes. So they cut it into little scraps, purify it, then pulverize it into a powder. So now it's, it's ready to go and mix with the solvent. A solvent that's injected into an electro spinner. It's very hard to see it, but probably if you look very, very closely, you might be able to see a little bit of the fibers. Those nanofibers can be used for any number of unique products, like surgical implants and wound dressings. And in the technical field... You can carbonize the fiber to use it for fuel cell electrodes and battery electrodes. They could patent their discovery, but instead they plan to share it free of charge. We view it train a student to have the consciousness of the environment, they will find new inventions. We hope 
they grab it and hold to it and make the world a better world. Linda Aylesworth, Global News. Caught on video, a close call and some pretty impressive driving in Lincoln County, Wyoming. Although part of this seems like a fluke to me. A sheriff's deputy scrambles to get out of the way of a car that hit black ice, but somehow the driver of the car regains control, avoids disaster, and simply drives away. Yet another major development tonight in northern Syria after Donald Trump's much maligned decision to pull U.S. troops out of the region. With the president of Turkey rejecting Trump's call to stop his military offensive against Kurds, Russia has stepped in to replace retreating American troops. The U.S. out, Russia in. Tonight, these photos show Russian forces moving into northern Syria as U.S. troops evacuate some of their bases. Some Russians are making fun of what they consider U.S. weakness. This video on Twitter showing a Russian-speaking man on what appears to be an empty U.S. base saying, let's see how the Americans lived. And Turkey is thumbing its nose at the U.S. too, intensifying its bombardment of U.S. allies, the Kurds, just hours after the White House said it would no longer tolerate Turkey's assault. Tonight, I spoke to General Mazlum Kobani, commander of all Kurdish forces here. He says President Trump promised him last night he'd stop the Turkish onslaught. Do you think that President Trump will keep his word to you? He wants to keep his promise, he says. But if you look at what's happening, it is not as he said. The general accused Turkey of pursuing a deliberate campaign to ethnically cleanse two million Kurds here. And that Turkey is using extremist militias, which U.S. officials say include former ISIS members, to drive people away or kill them. So the Kurds who fought with American forces against ISIS have turned to Russia and its ally, the Syrian army of Bashar al-Assad, to save them. Why did you decide to realign with the Syrian government? He says, I can say it was the best of bad options. Tonight, President Trump is sending Vice President Pence to negotiate with Turkey and is threatening tougher economic sanctions. But Turkey's president just said the sanctions don't worry him. Hollywood star Felicity Huffman is behind bars tonight after reporting today to a California prison to begin serving her sentence in the college admission scandal. Huffman pleaded guilty to fraud and conspiracy for paying $15,000 to have someone correct her daughter's SAT answers. A federal judge sentenced her to 14 days in prison, a $30,000 fine, and 250 hours of community service. She'll serve the sentence in a low-security facility in Dublin, California, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And new legal problems for actor Cuba Gooding Jr. The 51-year-old pleaded not guilty in a New York City courtroom today to new charges of sexual misconduct. Gooding is already accused of groping a woman in a bar in June. Three more women have come forward claiming he groped them as well. NASA has unveiled the new spacesuits astronauts will wear when they return to the moon and eventually travel to Mars. The upgraded suits will be used for the upcoming Artemis program that will send astronauts back to the moon in 2024. The orange suit will be worn for their launch and re-entry, while the white suit will be used to explore the lunar surface. NASA says the new suits accommodate a broader range of astronaut sizes and feature improved fit, comfort and mobility. 
In health matters tonight, the Alberta government is joining BC's lawsuit to recover costs incurred by the opioid crisis. That lawsuit names 40 drug manufacturers, accusing them of falsely marketing opioids as less addictive than other pain medication and fueling the ongoing crisis. The suit seeks costs dating back to 1996, which could amount to hundreds of millions of dollars. Allegations have not been tested in court. Oh, I've been very heartened by the responses of other provinces. Alberta and Ontario and Newfoundland are all in the process of either drafting or introducing legislation to participate in this lawsuit. Uh, the more that we have uh, provinces working together across Canada, the more likely it is we'll be able to reach a, a satisfactory resolution for British Columbians and all Canadians. A drone captures great video of a school of fish, but it's when a shark shows up that the fireworks really start. That's coming up right after the weather forecast. Just before we get to Christy, a British family's visit to B.C. has become, become something of an international incident after they found themselves on the wrong side of the border and were taken into custody by U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE. Sarah McDonald is live at the Peace Arch border crossing with more on the story. Now, Sarah, there are some conflicting details coming from the family and from border agents. Sophie, conflicting is right, and that is likely an understatement. The detainees in this case claim this was all an honest mistake, but American border officials have a very different side to this absolutely bizarre story that all started here on the Canadian side of the border with the United States several weeks ago. Now, two related families of British tourists, a pair of adult couples with three young children, including an infant between them, were visiting Vancouver earlier this month when the vehicle they were riding in was veered off a stretch of road on Zero Avenue, which borders B.C. and Washington State. Now, nobody disputes that. What is being disputed is why they drove over that fenceless border road and whether it was intentional. Lawyers representing the families who have now been detained by U.S. immigration officials for nearly two weeks claim it was all an accident, saying the vehicle swerved to avoid an animal. But there is likely more to this story. As we know, those two traveling families were stopped by American authorities and arrested according to Customs and Border Protection Services and it was later discovered that two of those adults had previously been denied entry to the United States. Canada would not take those seven detainees back either so all of those family members remain in legal limbo in American detention centers tonight. Uh, British Foreign Affairs says it is providing consular assistance to its citizens but Canadian authorities have not yet responded to our requests for comment. All right. Thanks for that. Sarah McDonald at the Peace Arch. Sounds like there's a lot more to this story than uh, what we've been hearing. No doubt. Okay, let's check in with Christy Gordon, who's with us uh, for the weather right now. And it looked like it got a lot wetter through the afternoon here. I've seen it on the traffic cams. Yes, absolutely. So it started off dry and then we saw the first wave of rain and we're going to continue to see these waves over the next few days. A little dark out there right now. We are going to see another wave push on overnight. So not only are we going to see rain, but we're going to see wind over the next little while. Tonight and tomorrow, these waves will continue. Periods 20 to 45 millimeters of rain for Metro Vancouver region and south coast areas. Southeast winds 30 to 70 kilometers 
kilometers an hour, but that's 70 out near the water. So the Strait of Georgia, areas like Tawasin. I urge you to check with BC Ferries tomorrow. If you're traveling BC Ferries, there could be some delays, uh, but certainly a gusty uh, day. It won't be consistent throughout the day. There certainly will be some breaks, but that will happen on and off. So leave yourself a little bit of extra time, both in the morning and in the afternoon, because the commute could be a little bit slow, certainly. And I thought I would give you a little bit of a bright spot off in the distance. So as we talked about, we are going to see periods of rain, one after another, right through the weekend until about Monday. But it looks like the trend come Tuesday and through next week is in this big, nice upper level ridge. So off in the distance next week, it looks like if the pattern continues, we could see uh, some nice uh, weather over the long range. And I thought I would give you a little outlook as we head into the rest of October, November and December. Uh, the models are showing that we will have on average, above normal temperatures. And in terms of precipitation, it looks like we could be near normal or above normal in terms of precipitation. So continuing on with this wet pattern, unfortunately, on average into December. And that's what the models are showing right now. Here's a look at your Wednesday, everyone. So periods of rain across coastal regions. These areas here, just a chance of showers, certainly a rain shadow effect in through the Okanagan Valley. Wind and rain for our region tomorrow. It will continue to be as such through Thursday and Friday, although the weekend still looks wet, but it looks like just showers. So a little bit of a reprieve. And then as we mentioned, that sunshine expected next week into, well, Tuesday on. Nice shot of the fall colors. Thank you to Daniel for that in New Westminster. Beautiful. Cool leaves. Thanks very much, Christy. Some truly spectacular video now captured off the coast of Florida of the explosive reaction by a school of fish to the arrival of a predator. Ah, uh, but not just any predator. The school of jacks was feeding on a school of minnows when a shark decided to make them its dinner. The school explodes like a firework as the fish dart away from the shark. It had its work cut out for it, though. Jacks are considered one of the strongest and fastest fish. Really good swimmers. And in Utah, the Salt Lake County Sheriff's Office went above and beyond to rescue a rather large dog, Floyd. 190 pounds of him injured himself while on a hike with his humans. The sheriff's office responded and they had to take turns carrying Floyd more than three kilometers down the trail to be transferred to an animal hospital. He is expected to be okay, though. All right, a story out of Alberta tonight could be a glimpse into the future of how we protect our vehicles. An Edmonton man was caught red-handed keying another man's car with an onboard technology that police say is changing the way they work. Godwin Leung parked his car in this lot Saturday afternoon on his way to the Eskimos game. But when he got back... I just noticed a large white scratch on the driver's side door. The global news editor's Tesla has security cameras all over it. So that's one of the cameras. So Leung checked the video. It shows a man getting out of a truck. He walks past my car all nonchalant and just swipes his key across my uh, past my door. It's pretty discouraging. Like I just, I didn't know what to think actually. Like I don't, I don't know the guy, so it's not a personal vendetta or anything like that. So I just don't know why he would do something like that. Lang reported the incident to police. He says they didn't show interest at first. But once I showed them the video, they. You know, they were a lot more interested. This video shows a similar keying incident in Colorado a couple of weeks ago. It went viral and generated hundreds of tips to police. We were able to identify pretty quickly uh, who the woman was. 
we made contact with her within about 48 hours of the initial incident and were able to recognize that she was most likely the suspect in our case. Welty says personal recording devices like dash cams and doorbell cameras are changing police work. So we get a lot more tips than maybe we would in the past, but the validity of the tips and the leads that we get is stronger than ever before, too. Welty says cameras don't always deter people from committing crimes, but... I have a feeling, though, that people are going to think twice before keying a Tesla. After seeing the story, no doubt, because the video was so clear. Julia Wong, Global News. It just... It's just mean. It's a physical reaction to seeing that happen. It's hard, isn't it? <laughs> it's hard. Just a waste of money. Exactly. Get Shorty. Was it Get Shorty? No, it wasn't Get Shorty. It was Pulp Fiction. Yes. Oh, yeah. Where John Travolta's character says, you don't... With a man's car or anybody's <laughs> oh, yeah. car. That's against the rules. You don't mess with someone's car. That's against the rules. Not True. cool. It was Roxanne reference, right? <laughs> you said turn on. No, actually, oh. that wasn't. But yeah. I, I know. Turn I wondered why exactly. during the commercial break you started singing Roxanne. It's like, I get it. Turn on the red yeah. light. Yeah. That's why. Yeah. Not easy these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, tonight's game between the Canucks and the Red Wings will uh, feature. A bit of a different look for Vancouver. As we told you last night, Thatcher Demko is going to be the starting goalie. Jacob Markstrom is dealing with family issues for a few days. The Canucks brought up defenseman Ashton Sautner. Oscar Fantenberg is still out. Sautner will not play tonight. However, the man beside me, Tyler Mott, will get a chance to play instead of Adam Gaudette, who will join Sautner and Louis Erickson as the guys who watch the game in suits and ties. It'll be uh, Mott's first game of the year. He had been out with an upper body injury. Hasn't played for the Canucks since March 24th when he left the game with that aforementioned injury. He'll go to his usual fourth-line spot, hit everything in sight, and likely get some penalty-killing time as well. Well, despite scoring eight goals against the L.A. Kings, when Kings goalie Jonathan Quick looked like one of those goalies from the 1980s, the Canucks are the 10th lowest-scoring team right now, albeit after four games, small sample size. But we haven't seen a big game yet from the big guns, Elias Pettersson or Brock Besser. One of these games, they will light it up. But teams are paying a lot more attention to them these days. It's a tough league to create a lot of offense in this league. I think, you know, the way the team, the league is getting very aggressive in how it plays, how fast it is. Uh, our offensive guys haven't quite got going yet either. And when you look around the, the league, the teams that are scoring, uh, you know, the offensive guys are, are producing. And I like, you know, I think we could have, could easily have two more points right now. And to say that when our offensive guys haven't really got going yet, that's pretty positive because I know they're going to get going. Andre Vasilevsky doing some sort of yoga move before the game against Montreal. It's one nothing Habs, but just before the end of the first period, Braden Coburn, 1-1. Then in the second period, with the Lightning now up 2-1 on the Steven Stamkos goal, here they come again. Tyler Johnson scores. Tampa wins 3-1 in Montreal. All right, now that Mike Riley is injured, broken wrist, gone for the rest of the season, the Lions will have a different quarterback. It'll be Danny O'Brien, who's been around the CFL for five years, but never really has had a chance to play very much, usually a backup, although he did win a great cup with Ottawa as a backup in 2016. Like Riley took a hit, and he's favoring that left left hand, left wrist. Yeah, that 
could be a problem. The guy's been an undoubtable leader of our team and battled all all year for us. I mean, he's well worth the money and the advertisement. You know, I can't the leadership and the things that he brings to the table is unsurmountable, and I can't. You know, we it's a devastating blow for us, but the guy's going to rally and we're going to play. So it is Danny O'Brien who has thrown the football seven times this season. Danny O'Brien served as Mike Riley's backup the previous two seasons in Edmonton. He'll now take over the starter's role for BC as the Lions close out a disappointing season. For the sixth-year pro who's been basically holding a clipboard his entire professional career, it's a chance to show that he's more than a practice player. The biggest challenge is a career backup so far in my career, such as myself, is you have to do the lonely work away when no one's looking to stay ready because, like you said, I mean, there's no secret. It is Mike's team, and he's what has made this team go and the teams he's been on in you know previous years. So I've just tried to learn from him every single day, uh, compete with myself, even though you know not a lot of eyes might not be on me. Losing Mike Riley to a broken wrist has left the Lions extremely thin at quarterback. It's why they reached out and signed Brandon Bridge for the final two games. Bridge hasn't tossed a football since being released by Montreal midsummer, but unlike Danny O'Brien, Bridge has played quality minutes in the CFL. And coming to BC reunites him with Lions offensive coordinator Jarius Jackson, who previously coached Bridge in Saskatchewan. I just want to hopefully come in here, show my worth, and uh, see what happens for next year. Is this the last go for you then? Oh, no, it won't be. It, it, it actually won't be like the last goal. It's definitely, uh, I'm going to, like, that's why like, I'm out here to see, like, what can happen. Uh, I definitely want to play football. Uh, but, you know, like, life will have to go on with or without football, right? But, uh, you know, like, obviously my first thing would be to play football, but. I mean, you, you can't, you know, never want to get caught with your pants down. He's a guy familiar with the system offensive-wise and that type. And, I mean, we think he's a talented player. So, it's definitely we can get a good look at him. And then if we got to play him, we'll play him. If it fits and works out that we end up playing him, then we'll, we'll go from there. The Bronx. Yankees, Astros. Game three, series tie 1-1. Garrett Cole striking out Aaron Judge. Cole had it going on. Flavor Torres, yep, seven strikeouts in this game. Zach Britton, Yankees relief pitcher, no! Don't make your catcher go digging in the dirt. Altuve scores, 3-0 at that point. Former Blue Jay Roberto Osuna comes in, gets a save. Houston's now up 2-1 in the series. Paul Goldschmidt and the Cardinals struggling. Down 3-0 in this series, and you won't win this series if this is happening. I wouldn't say this is Little League, because in Little League, oh, no. you don't do this. Oh, oh, boy. These are pros. These are millionaires. What always happen? What is go Call it. Right fielder, it's yours. Oh. The guy coming in should have it every time. Seven runs in the first, 7-4 now in the yes. fifth for Washington. If they win, they move on to the World Series. There you go. All right, working your way up to the position of assistant principal of a high school requires a good amount of ambition. But a dedicated teacher in Louisiana has set an entirely new standard of success for how she got there. How you doing this morning, young man? That's good. We all know you can learn a lot from a school principal. I will be successful. Yes, but assistant will. principal Pamela Talbert in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, may be teaching the ultimate lesson by being here at all. She's oh, a walking miracle and an inspiration to everybody. Her career path started as a janitor. When a teacher noticed how much she loved kids and suggested she go into education, she decided she would try. But there was a big obstacle in her way. 
I was reading on a third grade level. So she had her own children help her. They would go to school and they would come back and they would teach me everything that they learned that day. First, she became a bus driver, then got her master's and eventually worked her way up to assistant principal. I say, I can do this. I know I can do this. It's a lesson she now instills every day. Somewhere somebody dropped a ball on me. And I don't want that to happen to the children that I serve every day. An assistant principal who never gives up on her students. Anything is possible and the sky's the limit. Because she never gave up on herself. You're going to have an awesome day today. Kristen Dahlgren, NBC News. Thank you. She is not dropping the ball at all. Okay, uh, so yeah, wet and a little nasty, but you say there's hope (laughs) next week. Yes, exactly. Next oh, week, everyone. Next week. And it is just Tuesday still. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Thanks. So, yes, rain on and off. So tomorrow we're expecting both uh, wind and rain. So keep that in mind. So wind gusts near the water up to about 70 kilometers an hour. And the rain, rain won't be consistent. You will see some breaks. So, uh, but on and off There's certainly hope. through the weekend. <laughs> I don't love it when we start putting numbers next to the rain. I know. Rain. Not uh-huh. just rain, but how much rain. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We start measuring. <laughs> oh, well. Good luck to the Canucks tonight and everybody going down to the game. Thanks for watching. Turn on the red light. Brought to you.